You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For this recipe, take some white fish, heavily salt, and air dry it. Ship it across an ocean, then soak it for a few days in a solution of cold water and sodium hydroxide, also known as caustic soda, also known as lye, the chemical used to make soap. Yeah, the stuff from Fight Club. After thorough rinsing, the fish will have the consistency of jello. No matter how you cook it, it will not brown, in part because the proteins have been destroyed. It will discolor aluminum cookware, though. Serve to Norwegians or people of a certain age in Minnesota. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Foods are as varied as the people of the world. They are part of our families, our homes, our traditions. Many of the foods that we eat and foods we no longer eat were the products of necessity. This is true of many fermented foods. Fermentation is when yeast, bacteria, or other microbes ingest part of the food, usually a sugar, and give off a byproduct like acetic acid in the case of vinegar and pickles, ethanol in the case of beer and wine, and CO2 in the case of bread. Usually they give off multiple things. Since most of mankind's history took place before electric refrigerators, fermentation was an inevitable part of life. So many traditional foods were created by people leaning in to fermentation. If you turn a bit green thinking of oats and organ meats cooked in a stomach, which is of course the Scottish delicacy haggis, kiviak is probably not right for you. This dish is a winter specialty consumed by Inuits in the far north of Greenland for centuries. The preparation of kiviak involves an ingenious method of food storage necessitated by the severe shortages in the cold months. In a few words, kiviak is fermented seabirds stuffed into a seal skin and eaten raw. The preparation goes something like this. A seal is skinned, removing all of the meat for other dishes, but leaving behind its protective layer of blubber. It's then sewn into the shape of a bag and filled to the brim with three to five hundred small auks, a little bird similar to a penguin. When the bag is nearly bursting with bird bodies, it's sewn shut and fat is smeared over the seams to keep flies out. The bird-filled sealskin bag is buried under a pile of rocks and left to ferment for a minimum of three months, and sometimes as long as 18. In the harsh winter season of the Arctic, where there's no sun for two straight months to cast any light on the ice underfoot, let alone illuminate prey, hunting for fresh meat is virtually impossible. That's when the kiviak comes into its own. The bags of fermented meat are dug out, cut open, 
and the birds are eaten raw. The fermentation makes it so that every part of the bird is edible, even the bones, with the notable exception of the feathers. While it's not as necessary for survival for as many people as it once was, kiviak is considered a delicacy of sorts and brought out for celebrations and festivals. Beloved as it may be for its traditional value, kiviak is usually eaten outside. Otherwise, the smell stays in your house the rest of the winter. If a seal carcass full of birds isn't your thing, pop over to Iceland for a piece of hawkarl. I am not pronouncing that correctly. I am unable to pronounce it correctly. It is rotten shark. This fermented shark meat can be traced back to the Viking Age, and so is celebrated as a way for Icelanders to stay in touch with their roots, and preparing it is often a social event in and of itself. They say you eat with your eyes first, but it's the nose that dictates the hawkerall eating experience. Hawkerall smells strongly of ammonia, the trademark stink of window cleaning fluid and cat pee. Even wilder, the meat of the Greenland shark, which is used for hawkerall, is poisonous to humans. This is due to the high concentration of urea and trimethylamine oxide in the shark's system due to its utter lack of a urinary system. The shark basically releases urine from its bloodstream and tissues. This apparent lack of basic plumbing makes it even more amazing that Greenland sharks are the longest-lived vertebrates on Earth, with specimens found to be 400 years old. They don't even hit sexual maturity until they're 150. Think about that. A shark that came into the world when Ulysses S. Grant was inaugurated as president is just now getting ready to mate for the first time. The process of making hawkerel makes the shark flesh edible, especially for those persons with anosmia or no sense of smell. The traditional Icelandic method is to first gut and behead the shark. Okay, so far that's the same as butchering a chicken. Then the shark is placed in a shallow hole in the gravelly sand. Well, we left familiar ground fast, and it's covered with more sand and gravel. Stones are piled on top not only to protect the meat from scavengers, but to squeeze out fluids and shorten the fermentation process. The shark is left for between 6 and 18 weeks, depending on the ambient temperature. It's not ready yet, though. Now the hawkerel has to be dug up, cut into pieces, and hung up to dry for a few months, during which time the strips of meat develop a brown crust. Fans of potently stinky cheeses might enjoy hawkerel, but it would be tough going for pretty much everyone else. On his show The F Word, Chef Gordon Ramsay couldn't manage to swallow the piece he was offered. The late chef, author, and travel show host Anthony Bourdain described hawkerel as the single worst, most disgusting, and terrible tasting thing he had ever eaten. Though I do need to check and see if he said that before or after he ate boar rectum cooked in ash. Today's tour of questionable comestibles is brought to you by our amazing supporters on patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, who help me justify the 12 or so hours that go into researching, writing, recording, and editing each week's episode. 
We've just tipped over our medium goal, where 25% of the money pledged will go to other creators who offer free resources for podcasters, like composer Kevin McLeod, whose music I've been using since day one. The next goal will see 50% of member support go to member-selected charities. So if you've been thinking about joining but haven't gotten around to it, now is the ideal time. Sadly, there haven't been any new reviews to read in over a month, but I can always count on the weekly support of listeners who share and retweet our social media posts, like The Most Stable Genius, Eric Parfait, Richard Enriquez, Mary Metcalf, and The Florida Men Podcast. Many foods come from necessity, but some traditions are born of religious doctrine. In Catholicism, people are supposed to abstain from eating meat during Lent, the 40 days before Easter, or on any Friday of the year for some. Many convents and monasteries forbade eating meat entirely. This can be a real ask, since meat is delicious. According to the book of Corinthians in the Bible, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. So fish flesh is separate from other flesh, and therefore not on the banned list. So religious officials declared that other aquatic organisms were also okay to eat. Basically, if it lived in the water, it was a fish. A monastery in northern France in the late 1600s found a way around the meatless Friday rule by eating puffin, a cute little sea-going bird. The church considered it kosher because its natural habitat was as much terrestrial as aquatic, and therefore they should be allowed to classify it as a fish. Any waterfowl they could lay their hands on was called fish on the menu. By the way, and this is not related to the script at all, but you know how in The Lord of the Rings the orcs see the hobbits and one of them says, Looks like meat is back on the menu. That implies that orcs know what menus are, and by extension that orc restaurants are a thing. Just think about that later. In addition to disease, European settlers brought Catholicism with them to the New World, where their loophole meat options exploded. So in the 17th century, the Bishop of Quebec approached his superiors and asked whether his flock would be permitted to eat beavers. Since the semi-aquatic rodents were skilled swimmers, the church declared that the beaver was a fish. This Lenten exception is said to be part of the reason that beaver populations declined so sharply in the last 115 years, though the fur trade is far and away the more likely culprit. Take comfort, though, in knowing that wild beaver populations have rebounded in the last few decades thanks to conservation efforts. Now, the same logic was applied to the capybara, the largest rodent in the world, which is still eaten during Lent in Venezuela. Padre Soho, a famous Venezuelan priest, is held by one zoological text to have gone to Italy at the end of the 18th century and obtained a papal bull approving the capybara for Lenten dining because of its amphibious habits. Prussian naturalist Alexander von Humboldt wrote on capybara meat during his visit to Venezuela in the early 1800s, The missionary monks do not hesitate to eat these hams during Lent. According to their zoological classification, they place the armadillo, the thick-nosed tapir, and the manatee near the tortoises. 
the first because it is covered with a hard armor like a sort of shell, and the other because they are amphibious. One restaurateur told the New York Sun, It's delicious. I know it's a rat, but it tastes really good. Bishop Gregory Amond of New Orleans drew headlines for a letter confirming that the alligator is considered in the fish family and thus suitable for consumption during Lent. Salt and freshwater species of fish, amphibians, reptiles, cold-blooded animals, and shellfish are permitted, says the website of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Catholics living south of Detroit enjoy a long-standing informal dispensation to eat muskrat, though the local pronunciation is mushrat on Fridays of Lent. Bishop Kenneth Povish of Lansing, Michigan, describes the practice as immemorial custom and said that anyone who can eat muskrat was doing penance worthy of the greatest saints. A 2002 effort to restrict private sales of muskrats caused a massive outcry. I've never seen so many people upset about an issue, said a state representative. We had almost 500 people at the courthouse for the hearings on muskrat legislation. Back before the everything is a fish ruling, some monks were allowed to eat eggs after successfully campaigning that they weren't meat. They then stretched that logic to include other unborns, particularly fetal rabbits. It's thought by some that the domestication of rabbits for meat traces directly back to these monasteries. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Many foods are born of necessity, and many foods fall in and out of fashion. But no food, I think, currently lives in such a state of ignominy as the topic of the guest segment presented by the podcast Where Does It Go, who were also nice enough to have me on their show. Take it away, ladies. This is Emily. And this is Sarah. And we are from the podcast Where Does It Go? about the life cycles of stuff. And on this Bizarre Foods episode, we're going to talk about where molded salads went. Oh, man, molded salads. So also known as congealed salads or jello salads. They're made with gelatin. And I'll give you a little brief history of gelatin. It's made from boiling bony and cartilaginous portions of mammals, typically pigs and cows, sometimes horses and sheep, depending on what you're making, to release the collagen protein from these parts. It's actually a still popular method in some places for making savory jellies. Uh, Russia has a dish called hodolets. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. That is made this way, and it's still served today. 
Gelatin was originally utilized as a glue. It was referenced as early as 1682 in France. And then it was popularized by Napoleon and Napoleon's military because it was a handy protein source. It's a good way to get more nutrition out of parts of an animal that you couldn't eat otherwise. So we can blame Napoleon for this. Yes. (laughs) Dried gelatin was available as early as 1842. And that was pretty revolutionary for the inception of the molded food because you didn't have to go through as much of a process of boiling bones, then refining that liquid, mixing it with things and setting it. You had, you had a starting point in 1894 Knox gelatin starts up. That's more well-known in the United States for selling unflavored gelatin. And then in 1895 Jello is invented. It includes powdered gelatin, sugar and flavors, but it's not popular. Salesmen start showing up at fairs, church socials, community events to show off how jello can be used as a food, and it does better commercially. So if something takes a lot of work to do, and if it's popular in France, <laughs> it's considered fancy. Oh. It's considered a prestige food stuff. And then if you want it to have a more pleasing texture, like not hard like a gummy bear. Oh, gosh. But softer, you need refrigeration or access to ice for an ice box. So this is fascinating. Gelatin equals rich. Yes. Wow. Like fancy. Wow. And in the 1900s, there were a lot of household changes, especially the early 1900s, including the rise of home economics. Jello was kind of sciencey, so it fit nicely into the work of making homemaking a more defined and technical vocation. And so as ice boxes and then refrigerators became more available and powdered jello became more popular and had more offerings for flavors, the thought process of this being kind of a fancy food didn't catch up with the ubiquity of refrigerators and jello. So it was less expensive to make, but it was still considered sort of a, a high tone dish. So then why molded salads? Why not just jello? Jello is an easy way to dress up a plate. If you divorce what eating a jello salad would be like (laughs) from how it looks yeah they are beautiful a lot of them the peculiarity of the texture or ingredients is secondary to the presentation but it also meant that fruit or veggies or meats got a little punching up a little zippy flavor and people like sugar yeah or the original jello powder was 88 percent sugar really what is it now i don't know okay probably not 88 (laughs) percent but it's not low yeah Jello salads were classed as a way to use up leftovers before the rise of a casserole. It was also fairly inexpensive to buy, so it was a thrifty food. So where did molded salads go? The congealed salad or molded salad, jello salad, became much more of a celebration food, which tended to mean that leaner recipes that weren't as festive or seasonal were abandoned. So if it's a recipe that's using up all the leftovers in your fridge, It's not going to be something that you're going to serve to your entire family on Christmas Day. Women started working outside of the home more often, which meant that... Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) It meant that prepping a gelatin salad in the morning or the night before was a lot less likely to happen because it is a lot of work. I actually made a molded jello thing to bring here to Sarah, but it was too... It was disgusting. I couldn't bring it. Mm -mm. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Food trends started aiming more toward modernity and freshness, which meant that a molded salad became a bit dated. And then after that, you get more celebrity chefs or quick cooking tips and tricks. 
an escalation of diet culture because it uh, their Jello had a, a slogan of "There's always room for Jello," and it's an attempt to point out how light Jello is as dessert. And that didn't arise until their sales started falling because people were not eating molded salads as much. So Jello flavors over time have included Italian salad, celery, mixed vegetable, seasoned tomato, bubblegum, chocolate, root beer, no. maple syrup. No. Yeah. So Jello became more of a kid food, more of a for fun food. And, you know, molded salads fell out of fashion both because they take a lot of time and they didn't fit in with how people tend to eat. So that's where molded salads. The most expensive food people generally eat is black truffle, which can run $800 a pound. That's nothing compared to a rare Asian fungus that sells for $5,000 a pound. Oh, excuse me, that's $50,000 a pound. In English, it's called caterpillar fungus, but it's better known throughout Asia by the Tibetan term yartsagumbu, which means summer grass, winter worm. This fungi makes its living by getting inside a host insect, ultimately killing and consuming it. In this case, the insect that's invaded is the caterpillar of the ghost moth. This is all sounding pretty metal so far. The caterpillar will bury itself down a couple of inches into the soil. All the while, unbeknownst to it, the fungus is digesting it from the inside out. And then, in the spring, a sort of tissue erupts out of the head. This pinky-sized, mummified caterpillar is the most expensive fungi in the world, closer in price to gemstones than mushrooms. So why do people bother with something so nasty and so expensive? It's also known as the Viagra of the Himalayas. Yartsagumbu was mentioned as far back as a 15th century Tibetan medicinal text entitled An Ocean of Aphrodisical Qualities. That reputation has made it a status symbol. Daniel Winkler, who's written extensively about the fungus and gives mushrooming tours of Tibet, says the price in China has jumped by a factor of 10 over the past decade. A businessman looking to impress clients in China doesn't pull out a fine wine to flaunt his wealth. He cooks a nice goose or duck and fills it with a thousand dollars worth of caterpillar fungus. A good harvest of caterpillar fungus can triple the income of an entire village. Because it is so valuable, and because we can't have nice things, Yartsugambu has even caused violence. Last August in Nepal, seven men went missing after a dispute over Yartsugambu, and two of them were later discovered dead at the bottom of a ravine. On the plus side, one village was able to add solar panels to their centuries-old stone cottages, so I guess you have to take the bad with the good. If caterpillars make you queasy, hashtag sorry not sorry for the next section. There is a cheese described as the most dangerous cheese in the world. Due to health concerns, sticklers at the European Food Safety Authority have banned it. Therefore, those wishing to eat some must go through the Italian black market. This delicacy, Kasumarzu, is an acquired taste. Unless you're a maggot. They love it. How do I know? They're still eating it. Kasumarzu is maggot cheese. Kasumarzu is made from sheep's milk on the island of Sardinia in the Mediterranean Sea. Step 1. Heat the milk and let it sit for about three weeks to curdle. 
Next, cut off the crust that has formed. This way, the flies can get inside to lay their eggs. Move the cheese to a dark hut for another two months. During that time, the eggs hatch into larvae and begin to eat the now rotting cheese. This is when the important part happens. It's what the larvae excrete out the other end that gives the cheese its distinct, soft texture and rich flavor, like a very ripe gorgonzola. Congratulations, you now have Kasu Marzu. May God have mercy on your soul. Now that you have it, what do you do with it? It's important for one to note whether the maggots are alive or not. Dead maggots are usually an indication that the cheese has gone bad. Where exactly that line is, I cannot say. Kasumarzu is to be consumed with the maggots still alive. You'll want to close your eyes while eating, not only to block out the sight, but to protect your eyes. When bothered, the maggots will jump, sometimes as high as six inches. And be sure you chew your food thoroughly. The maggots can survive stomach acid if swallowed alive, and you risk them boring holes in your intestines. Serve with moistened flatbread and a glass of strong red wine. Still with me? Good. In for a penny, in for a pound. We now come to the food that tops my list of things to avoid in this life. The Philippine street delicacy, balut. Balut is a duck egg, not like the eggs you buy in a carton. A balut egg is created when a fertilized duck egg is incubated just long enough for the fetus to begin forming, usually between 12 and 18 days. According to those who know, the ideal balut egg should be incubated for exactly 17 days, though your mileage may vary. The longer the egg incubates, the more pronounced the features of the duckling become. The egg is then hard-boiled, exactly the same way chicken eggs are, though the reaction that occurs inside is quite different. The liquids in a balut egg, rather than solidifying, turn into a sort of broth, which simmers the duckling and the yolk. When the egg is done cooking, it should be eaten right away, while still warm. You crack off the top of the shell and drink the broth before eating the duck and the yolk. To get a sense of how you might react when approaching balut for the first time, here's an old BuzzFeed clip where four pairs of young adult Americans were given balut. Wait, am I supposed to go? Oh, it squirted oh, yeah. at me. Oh, it tastes good. Mm. Oh my god, what is that? Oh god. Oh no. It's a bird. Oh, it's a duck! That's a duck! I am not eating this. I think I just threw up a little in my mouth. Dude, I'm seeing like the first feathers in there. Oh. Never had a chance. It tastes like pate. You're a murderer. Now let's hope I don't get my butt suit off for using that. The taste for balut has to be fostered at an early age. Some schools in the Philippines are using science class to introduce kids to it in an attempt to preserve the delicacy's popularity against the country's rapidly modernizing and globalizing palates. The half-formed ducks are used to teach bird anatomy. Then the students are told to eat them. Our teacher made us eat the egg so it wouldn't go to waste, said one Manila resident of her ordeal. And if we didn't eat it, we'd get a low score on the lesson. Of course, I had no choice but to eat it. The dish is popular among Filipino families of ethnic Chinese background. 
Balut is widely enjoyed across numerous provinces in China also, especially in the South. Like many Chinese dishes, balut comes with a list of supposed health benefits. Among these, it's said to be able to burst libido and male fertility. Can't make it to Manila? A Filipino restaurant in New York sells them for $5 a piece. They even hold an annual balut eating contest every August. The current record is 27 balut in five minutes. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But let's jump back to the lye-soaked dry fish from the top of the show. This traditional, if polarizing, food is called lutefisk, literally lye fish. It can be found in the regions of America with large Scandinavian populations. It's popular enough in the Twin Cities that it's carried in shops around the holidays, served at big church functions, and even in some restaurants, traditionally alongside boiled potatoes, green peas, melted butter, little pieces of bacon, horseradish or cheese, and lefse, or Norwegian flatbread. St. Olaf College in Northfield hosts a spring music festival called Lutefisk, though Lutefisk is not served there. A tacit admission that even Minnesotans don't want to eat it more than once a year. Remember that you can always find the script for the show and the source material links on the website yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.